Good morning. It's good to see everyone, and it's good to be back. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but last week we had a general assembly, and our church meets once a year. And we met in Memphis this year, and I was really encouraged that Jesus said in the Great Commission that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And just seeing that practically manifested in a church that's heading in a healthier and healthier direction, that those Reformation principles of we're always reforming, we're always trying to see our lives and our beliefs being brought into greater and greater conformity with God's Word. And to see that manifest in our denomination, that was encouraging. And this time I'm not going to mess up again, because last I, I was told earlier today that two wrongs actually don't make a right, that just because I forget to mention Mother's Day, that forgetting to mention Father's Day would not be wise. So, happy Father's Day. Um, we are just so thankful for having godly fathers and having fathers, period, who invest in our lives. That is a huge blessing that we can be thankful to our Heavenly Father for. But that's not what the sermon is going to be about this morning. This morning we're going to continue through the book of Mark. We're at the very end of Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 32. And what we're reading here at the end of Jesus' sermon is we're reading Jesus' application of his message. So for those of you who think that a sermon is just about information and just imparting that information and that really about how it applies to your life, that, well, we just leave that to the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Actually, in the, Mark, the book of Mark, the longest sermon that we have is found in chapter 13, and it's found about the end times. And despite that maybe being something that we consider to be so far off and so future that it has no application, no practical way of affecting our daily living... Jesus makes a point to make explicit the application that he wants us to glean from it. And this is really important for us as we just read. To realize that the Bible gives us not just a rule, a direction on what we are to believe. But the Bible is eminently practical, also instructing us how the Christian is to live. And that's what we get in our text. Let's start reading Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come 
suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This sermon so far, Jesus is wrapping up his sermon on the end times. He's been talking about what the life of the Christian believer is going to be once he goes away. The disciples don't know it yet, but Jesus is going to be crucified on the cross. And afterwards, his goal is going to be to return to heaven, to sit on his throne in heaven, where he's going to rule as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus was going to be gone, absent from his people. And he's been giving them instruction on how and what it would look like in these last days. And he makes sure that they're not surprised by persecution. That they're not wondering if the end of the world's about to happen when famines or earthquakes happen. But they would realize that these are signs of the present evil age. Jesus predicted the temple destruction. And that, do, that did come to pass. So we have assurance that his words are true. But he also predicted his second coming. And with all these future predictions that Jesus is giving them, he doesn't answer probably the most important questions to the disciples. And maybe the question that we often have when it comes to things like the end of the world, which is the when question. When is this going to happen? Jesus gives explicit, makes explicit something that we need to hear. That concerning that day, the day when Jesus returns, the day when judgment day will happen, the day in which people will be raised from the dead, the just and the unjust, and every person is going to stand before the throne of God and have to give an account for their lives, for the good they've done and for the evil they've done, that day, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. See, this is really definitional to Christian living. There's a sense in which Christians are doomsday preppers. But probably not like the doomsday preppers you and I might be familiar with. When I say a prepper, you probably think of someone who's hoarding a bunch of food in the basement, someone who has a lot of ammunition, someone who's prepared for when destruction and devastation happens. If the government was supposed all of a sudden to collapse, what would we do? And I actually don't want to mock preparing for the future. That's a good thing. And yeah, sure, some people can overdo it. And some people can be an all-consuming thought where it gives them nothing but fear and anxiety in their lives. For the Christian, maybe at surface level, we realize that whatever is going to happen in the future, which is destruction of the wicked, that whatever happens, God is in control. And the God who's going to bring it is specifically the person of Jesus Christ. We know the judge, and he has already acquitted his people. So we don't have to live in fear of the future. But what should it look like in our lives? What should this knowledge do in our lives? 
What should it look like to be a Christian prepper? That's the title of this sermon, The Life of a Christian Prepper. And we start to get at the key of it when we realize something that has been throughout the entire sermon, and maybe you didn't even catch on to it. How many times Jesus says and pauses his words to say, Watch out. Look out. Be sober-minded. Be aware. Be awake. He says it eight times. It's the very first word of his sermon, and it's also the very last word of his sermon. Using different words, but both meaning the same thing. Watch out. Look out. We are a people living in anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the way in which Jesus tells us to prepare is so different than the way we normally prepare for temporary disasters in this temporary world. For the first thing, we are prepared by a basic conviction. Christians are prepared and are be preppers because we have a fundamental, basic, simple conviction that grips us. And it's that Jesus' word is true. And he tells us explicitly that no one knows the day. He says, you do not know when. And he says it again in verse 35, you do not know when the master will return. Despite that fact, how many Christians are predicting constantly the end of the world? Thinking they have the, the Antichrist nailed down. I think the first time I heard this was when back about 20 years ago, hearing maybe President Obama was the Antichrist, and then it was Donald Trump, and then it is now Joe Biden. It seems to be connected with America and the health of America. It seems like we're fun falling into the same patterns that we always do, and what Jesus warned of, which is looking at the world around us and trying to gauge from what we can see and from our perspective, trying to gain a grasp on what God is doing. The reality is, we all have a limited human perspective. What do we have? The oldest among us have a perspective of a hundred years out of how many years this world has existed. If we're going to gain a grasp of reality and be able to get a look from outside of ourselves, we have to look to a grander perspective. We have to look to God's word. And God tells us that no one knows. And maybe something that caused you a little bit of a problem, or maybe if you're paying attention, it should have caused you a big problem, is Jesus said in verse 32 that not even the Son knows. What's going on there? Well, there's, I think there's two helpful answers. Augustine said that Jesus did not know in the sense he did not know if, in the sense that he was not going to impart that information to the disciples. Augustine probably said this because, yes, Jesus is man, but he's, he's fully man, but he's also fully God. 
And when we think about that, it's hard to think that Jesus, as the God-man, would not know the day or the hour of the second coming. We've already seen him predict the future like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. We've already seen him have insight into the souls of people, knowing people's thoughts. Knowing the Pharisees' thoughts and what they were thinking. But to, I think Augustine actually has it a little bit of, of a misunderstanding. I think actually St. Athanasius said it better. When he talked about Jesus not knowing as a human being. That Jesus is not only fully God, but he's also fully a human being. Just like our conception of the end times needs to come from the Bible, so does our conception of Jesus himself. And we're told in Luke chapter 2 verse 40 that Jesus was once a child. And as a human being, he grew in knowledge, grew in wisdom, verse 40. That he had a human mind. If I was to jump back in time about 2,000 years ago and ask Jesus a question, which is something that we all kind of wish we could do, right? We all wish we could go back and talk to Jesus and get him to answer our most important questions. The reality is, is if I would jump back in time and ask him, hey, you know, whatever question, I'm not creative enough to come up with a question on the spot, unfortunately. But whatever question you have, if you asked it to him, Jesus spoke in Aramaic and Greek. English was not a language yet and would not be for another 1,300 years, 1,100, 1,300 years. He wouldn't have spoke English. He had a human mind. And this is so important because Jesus, to be our substitute, became a human being like us. He took on a human nature just like us. He was the second Adam. The first Adam was a normal human being who lived a life and he failed the test. He sinned against God and we all bear the repercussions of that father. But Jesus came to represent his people and to achieve where Adam failed. In order to do that, he had to be our representative. And what we have in Jesus is not a superhuman man. We have a human being who relied upon the Holy Spirit in every step of his life. He prayed to his heavenly Father. He looked to his Father for sustenance. He depended upon the will of God for direction in life. He lived the life we should have lived and he did not take the easy road. Invoking his God status somehow to make it easier to go through. To make his suffering just that much less. But that's not really the point of this text. The point in saying this was to humble his disciples. They would continue to ask this when question. And people ever since then have been audacious enough to claim to have knowledge that Jesus himself said he did not know as a human being. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but what is revealed belongs to us. When it comes to our direction and will, the will of God for our lives, we have enough to get our minds around in this book. We have 66 books that you can spend your whole life learning more and more about. And you'll never reach an end to it. You'll never fully comprehend the God that it describes. You'll never live up to the standards of ethics which the Bible lays out for you. God does not expect you, nor should we want to, know something that only He knows. Where God's holy mouth has kept silent, that's not the area which we are to go about speculating. We might be like a broken clock, being right maybe once in 24 hours. But the reality is, is we're not called to speculate about what God might want us to do because God has already declared so clearly in his word how we are to live, what we are to believe. And what he tells us we are to believe is that Jesus Christ is coming again. He will judge the world and that the life of the Christian is going to be one in which we live in the midst of a present evil age. And we go through much suffering, many tribulations in this life. We go through trials and we are rejected just like Jesus was rejected. We suffer just like Jesus suffered. But just like Jesus, we don't suffer as those without hope. But we suffer knowing the King is going to come and set all things right one day. What would he have us know, though? What he would have us know in our basic conviction and what he would help have us be prepared for is to be prepared for his second coming at all times. That we are to be prepared all the time for the second coming. So, however you've interpreted or however you've judged the previous sermons about looking at the end times, realize that whatever view of the end times you have, you need to have room for Jesus' second coming to happen suddenly, at any moment, or at least within your lifetime. Because Jesus tells explicitly that's how his people are to live. In verse 37 says, What I say to you, the disciples, I say to all, to everyone, with this instruction, to stay awake. And he gives a parable. He says in verse 34 that it's like a man who goes on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay Awake, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. That illustration he just gave there, basically, what was he doing? He's telling them to stay awake. And he gives them an illustration of someone, a master of a house, 
leaving his home and leaving the servants in charge. I wonder what practical instruction this could possibly mean for the church when the disciples' master would be leaving and would remain in heaven and when he would put his servants in charge. He's informing his disciples of their task. And their fundamental task is to watch and to stay awake. And on this journey, he paints the scene, really, of the four watches of the night. And he uses, that's what the significance of the language of in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. These are the three-hour shifts that a guard would have if you were a Roman sentry. A Roman guard would not stay awake the entire night to be vigilant in his guard duties. What they would do is they'd break up into shifts of three hours. Someone would take the first shift evening from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The next person would take the midnight shift from 9 p.m. to 12. The next shift would be when the rooster crows from 3 to 6 a.m. Or rather from midnight to 3 a.m. And then lastly, the morning they referred to as from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And the point here of what he's telling his disciples is they need to be watching out for the coming of the Messiah just like that. For the master could come home at any point during the night. We need to be ready at all times. You see, our packing, if you will, what we're preparing for when we're preparing for disaster is not to huddle up in our shelter, not to isolate from the world, but what we are to prepare for is what John Bunyan calls the Pilgrim's Progress. By the way, if you haven't read that book, I, I beg you to read that. I beg you to read that because it shows the, a perfect illustration of what it looks like to prepare for Christian living. To be what it looks like to be someone who prepares for Jesus' coming. Prepares for the wrath to come. It's someone who's prepared for a journey of life. The pilgrim's progress begins with a man who finds himself or wakes up holding on to the book, the book of life, which John Bunyan is portraying as the Bible. And as he reads it, he comes to realize that the city he's living in is called the city of destruction. And that the city of destruction was, guess what? going to be soon destroyed. And he started to go about to his family and to his neighbors, telling them that they live in a city that's about to be destroyed. But his family, his children, his friend, his neighbors, did not listen to him, but mocked him. We are to stand on guard at all times, no matter what mocking we endure, no matter what disbelief we encounter, we are to realize that Jesus already prepared ourselves, prepared us, rather, 
For Jesus is coming to not necessarily be immediate, but that it is coming, that it is for sure. Every human being has a sense that this world does not operate the way it should. That death, destruction, famine, plague, while it seems to feed into the natural course of our lives, something within us tells us that that is not the way it's supposed to be. That this is an indication, or Jesus tells us this should be an indication to us, unless we're suppressing the truth, that God's wrath is upon the world. That God does not approve of our sin. And notice that for the Christian, the instructions he gives them to watch is not just to be always ready at any point during the night, but that each one has a duty. He gives and assigns to each servant, verse 34, each with his own work. There is no servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who is not called to be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone has a duty. Everyone's called to be prepared. Everyone's supposed to and is called to read the book of life. To warn our neighbors that they live in the city of destruction. And to flee from the wrath to come. And we're to lead the way by ourselves fleeing from the wrath to come. But I think we get to even something maybe more practical. Because right now we're dealing with pictures, with imagery of pilgrims, of a doomsday prepper. But what does all this mean? What does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to be asleep? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 36 that Christians are to be prepared lest he come suddenly, which he has already said he will, and they find us asleep. This is a common image in the New Testament, and I'm thankful for that. And by the way, when it comes to interpreting prophecy in the New Testament, you go to the clear scriptures to interpret the unclear. You go to the, uh, the clear scriptures to interpret that which is ambiguous. If you're looking at the Old Testament, you look to the New Testament to see how it interprets the Old. And here we see that this image of being awake does not refer to being physically awake. Dr. Plummer, out of a southern seminary, he's a Greek professor. He said that Jesus spoke to his original disciples. And he realizes that this teaching applies to all throughout history. In saying that this command is for all to stay awake. Not physically, but awake as disciples. That our lives would be lived in such a way that we are conscious of his lordship. Living in obedience and submission to Him. Living in repentance when we fail. And having faith in His promises of salvation. And that the Christian is to do this so that when He returns, we would not find ourselves ashamed. I think that captured the image of what Jesus is calling His disciples to do. 
living conscience of his lordship. Being awake to the realities of this world. A good place to look to that would be Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 60 and says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. In the application of this, he says, look carefully, this is Ephesians 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Or verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also are you to be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God, just as you are doing, so you do so more, more, uh, more and more. For we gave you instructions, what uh, gave you instructions through Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And not in the passions of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's this sense in this picture between Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Thessalonians, really the entire book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, where darkness is described as that place where people live, where there is sin, debauchery, drunkenness, that the darkness of this world is the ignorance that the nations live under. And we're told over and over again as Christians that we are to be prepare ourselves for Jesus' second coming by living a life of holiness. Because we've been brought out of darkness into light. We've went from ignorance of who God was to knowledge of God in His ways. At General Assembly this year, I was really privileged to listen to O. Palmer Robertson, who was at the very first General Assembly of the PCA and also spoke at this 50-year anniversary of the PCA. And he's noted something, that when he went across different Presbyterian churches, and he's preached at many by now, in various different denominations, he said, you know what? Presbyterians have the doctrine of justification by faith alone down pat. We know, and everyone seems to be really solid on the fact that the only way to escape the wrath to come is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you. That's a message that's consistently preached. But on the other hand, he said... But have we forgotten the gospel call to live a life of holiness? 
to live as children of the light. To live as those who are awakened, who are enlightened, who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection in our lives. Do we act like dead men and women or do we act like those who have been born again? Have we forgotten that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 7 tells us that we're to strive for peace with everyone, but also to strive for the holiness without which no one will see God? Do we realize that the same saving faith that produces in you and grants you a hope of heaven is the same faith that doesn't just listen to God's word and select portions of the New Testament that tell you to listen to Jesus and look to him for your only hope in life and death. Of course you're commanded to have faith in those. But saving faith listens to all that God has said. Listens to all of God's promises and listens to all of God's direction. See, the life of a Christian prepper is not one in which we isolate ourselves from the world... It's one in which we live a life of holiness in the midst of this present evil age. That we look and realize that we have been brought to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to live like that. We want our lives to be a testimony of the transformative power of the gospel. To bear witness to our neighbors. We are to live the life of pilgrims. See, this present evil age is marked by sin. Matthew chapter 24, when talking about this, what Mark leaves out here, is he says that, it's going to come, that his coming is going to come suddenly. That it will be like the days of Noah. And what were the days of Noah like? People were growing more and more in their sin. And they lived as if no judgment was to come. They did not listen to, to Noah when he provided a way of escape on an ark. But instead, they scoffed at him, lived their lives. And when the flood came, it came suddenly and it came hard and it wiped out the whole world. Being Christians means being awake. And the sad reality is that Jesus, when he comes, will find some of us asleep. Some of us living not as if we were not conscious that Jesus is Lord. Living as if delighting in the Lord was not more worthwhile than our most precious sins. Living lives that seemingly are totally indifferent to the fact that judgment is coming. Jesus told us to be prepared because uh, the pilgrim's progress is a long one. It's an arduous journey. It's one in which as we walk our Christian life, we are prone to stumble, prone to get lost, prone to think we're never going to make it till the end. The life of a pilgrim, I, I have the words of Sinclair Ferguson in my mind. 
And some of you might too, because he's a Scottish man. He has a good, nice Scottish accent. And I'm pretty sure I could listen to whatever sermon he wanted. I, anything he preaches, even if it wasn't for the context, just for his voice. He compared the life of a pilgrim to the life, his life as a Scotsman living in America. He said wherever he goes, he likes to surprise people when people say, hey, where are you from? He would always say, oh, I'm from South Carolina. And they would all be, they would stumble and be shocked. And they'd be like, where are you really from? You see, even though he was living in America, his life and his accent was marked by his homeland. Marked by the place where he had a dual citizenship in. What's the Christian accent? When we speak to the world, do they see something different about us? Or do we blend in? Do we stick out like a Scotsman in the South, like a sore thumb? Because our lives are so utterly different. Or do we bear the accent of heaven? Living for him. Living lives that are totally different. Living lives of holiness. Living lives that are marked by the gospel. Marked by the God who we love. Not by the sins that marked our, pre our precious former life. Our Christian life and our pilgrimage, we should be finding ourselves just like the Christian exiting out from the city of destruction. We should find ourselves entering into, as Christians, a foreign land. On the lookout for our heavenly home. Knowing that we in this world do not have a place. And we should find ourselves going through this life being more and more out of place. You know, Jesus brings this up again, though. Mark chapter 14, verse 38. He gives the picture, actually, of a moment that happened in the disciples' life. He was waiting for the Pharisees to come and Judas to betray him, to betray him into the hands of sinful men. And he told his disciples in verse 37 and verse 38 to watch out and to pray. I wonder why that's in some of our manuscripts in these, first, these six verses here. To watch and to pray. The disciples were called to watch and to pray. And they kept falling asleep. And Jesus commanded them on three separate occasions to stay awake. The approaching disaster is near. And Jesus told them in verse 38, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The reality is for the Christian life, is we all fail. There's a sense in which when Jesus comes back, there's going to be some imperfection of our lives. There's going to be some taint in our lives that mark conformity with our surrounding culture. 
But that doesn't mean God hasn't given us the power and the Holy Spirit to not be conformed. There's a sense in which we are disciples, though our spirit is willing. We're like the man in Romans chapter 7 saying, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things that I don't, that I feel in my body this tension. This is the Christian life. And we should be so thankful at this point that Jesus, when it comes to his disciples' failure, when they, in their bodily weakness, they fell asleep and Jesus kept finding them asleep, he was compassionate. He gave them forgiveness. They were his children. And however Jesus finds us, he will find us as his children. That's our hope in life. We make it our... Please, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. While absent from the Lord in our body or present with Him in our death, we make it our aim in this life to live a life pleasing to our Heavenly Father. That's our aim. That's our goal. And that's how we as Christians prepare for the life to come. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that has told us not just what to believe, but has prepared us for a life of suffering, a life marked by sin, that you did not leave us unaware of the fact that we will continue to live in a sinful world until Jesus comes. And we are also thankful we're thankful that you didn't tell us when. Lord, we confess in our sinfulness, if you would have told us when, we would not live lives of holiness until about probably three days before Jesus comes. That we are all, or maybe I'm just confessing my own sin here, that I live a life of procrastination, putting off the responsibilities until the last moment. Lord, may we not live like that. May we... Repent of our lives of procrastination from living lives of holiness. May we make our lives aimed at pleasing our Heavenly Father. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's not looking to Jesus to escape the wrath to come, may he look at the world and the judgment that it's currently under, the sin, the death, the misery, the disease, the earthquakes, the famines, the dictators, the unlawful governments, may they look at those things and see that God's wrath is on the world and that those things would be signals to them that God will one day not just give us a taste of judgment, but will bring judgment upon every wicked deed and every sinful thought, word, deed, emotion. And may he fling himself at the feet of Jesus and look to Jesus to be his righteousness. To look to the day of Jesus' coming not as the manifestation of his justice towards them, but as the manifestation of God's mercy towards sinners. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, may every Christian realize that holiness is not an option. 
It's not something we can take or leave. It's part of this package deal of what the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And may we, as we look and prepare for doomsday, may our conviction not lead us to be like those who are hiding in a nuclear bunker, but that we would live lives as pilgrims, knowing this world is not our home, and seeking to present the power of the gospel to our neighbors, knowing that it's only your word that can convince and convert sinners. It's only the gospel that can shine the light on our sinfulness and our need for Jesus. And oh, how great our need is. And may we as Christians feel the weight of the burden of our sins and not stop feeling that weight until we take up our burden and lay it at the feet of the cross. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's continue.